Hi guys, I'm Marie. And I'm Maddie. And we are here recording Bunker Talk. No, fuck. Why do God I damn it, that? again, leave it in the episode. No. Leave it in. No. Okay, we are here recording Lost in the Woods. Welcome. Good morning. Good morning. I'm sorry, I'm just laughing at my mother. Yeah, I'm a pretty funny person. Um. So today we are trying out our new microphone. So there I'm may... Sorry be some volume issues i'm not quite sure we're realizing that we're probably going to need two of them because of how close we need to be to the microphone yeah which we're going to take care of today but we need to record right now if you guys are going to get your episode on time because it's already thursday (laughs) i know it's already thursday Uh. so um Let us know how this sounds to you guys. Let us know what the issues are so we can try to fix it because we want to give you guys the best sound possible. Right. But we can guarantee there's probably going to be a little bit of a sound or volume issue. Yeah, on this this one. one. So, but I think it sounds a lot better quality than our other microphone. Yeah, you might not notice it either, but when you compare them side to side, which we did this morning, it's pretty drastic. It's very drastic. Yeah. So another thing that we're doing today is we're sending out our cups for our winners Yes. in our drawing. Okay, so today we are going to Oklahoma for the Camp Scott Girl Scout murders. And this one was a listener recommendation from Teresa Hildebrandt. Hildebrandt? Something like that. Hopefully I got that a little close. But thank you for the recommendation. And I know that a lot of people have covered this case. So hopefully you'll get some information today that you didn't have before. This one is kind of a rough one. So I am. My mom told me that this case was going to make me angry. And before she told me what case it was. And I was like. She explained a couple of reasons why it was going to make me angry. And then I was like, well, what case is it? And she goes, it's the Girl Scout murders. And I was like, yeah, this case is going to make me angry. Yeah. So this one's kind of a rough one. It's it's close to home for me as well. I have a Girl Scout who is. It's not me. Literally in this age range. It's. It, yeah, it's a rough one. So if you think that this might be a tough one for you. We'll try to give you warnings when bad things come up and if you want to skip them or whatnot. We'll tell you when to fast forward. Yeah. Okay. This case takes place at Camp Scott, which is located in Locust Grove, Oklahoma. And this camp has been operated by the Girl Scouts since 1928. Okay, so located two miles from the town of Locust Grove in Mays County. There was a creek on the site, and the camp occupied about 410 acres of densely wooded hillside. So there were 12 campsites, all named after different Native American tribes. So the tents were about 12 by 14 and made of canvas. They also had sides that you could roll up, so it was kind of more of an open area. And each one held about four cots, which sat on wood platforms. I feel like this is, like, classic Girl Scout. Like, this is what I think of when I think of people going to, like, people going to Girl Scout camp. This is actually almost exactly what it looks like. So when we went to Girl Scout camp, 
this last year, which, by the way, because of this case, because of this story, I had to go be a counselor at Girl Scout camp because I couldn't I could I couldn't send Cordy by herself. I was too scared. And we had open air cabins. So we didn't even have flaps that came down on the side. We just had a backside and a roof. And then the three sides were open and there were bunk beds in there. How many times did you get bit by mosquitoes? It was real bad. Like, really, really bad. I think I would bring a mosquito net just to hang over my bed just because I cannot handle that. I couldn't. I honestly, I wish I would have thought of that. Like, for Girl Scout camp. Like, I'm not saying I'm against, like, sleeping underneath the stars or doing anything like that. Like, that's fine. But you can't even sleep underneath the stars. You have a roof over your head. You're just cold and miserable out in the open for predators to get you and it was freezing our cabin faced another cabin so it was completely open so the little girls went the our younger girls went into that cabin we went into the cabin that faced it and then the older girls including my daughter ended up at the cabin that was like probably a hundred feet 200 feet from our cabin more into the woods. On June 12th, 1977, the camp started. It was a Sunday. So girls started to arrive at the Girl Scout headquarters to load on buses that would take them to Camp Scott. There would be about 130 campers that would attend. And remember, this camp can hold 140. Still, that's a lot of girls. That's a lot of kids. Yeah, that is a lot of kids. But remember, there's different sites. So they're not all going to be in one place. So the girls would be there to camp for two weeks. So the campers spilled out of the buses to find their units and their tents, and they would drop off their sleeping bags and backpacks. So the Kiowa unit was made up of eight tents. Each tent was designed to hold four girls, so there would be about 28 girls in the Kiowa unit. The tents formed a sort of U-shape, and tent eight was the last one in the row. It was the closest to the bathrooms and the kitchen, but the furthest away from the camp counselors who were in tent one. So sometimes you hear this referred to as tent seven, but that's because the counselors called it tent seven because they didn't count their own tent. But once everything happens, everybody else calls it tent eight because it's the eighth tent. Gotcha. There were four counselors staying in tent one, and it was about 150 yards from tent eight. Okay, so it's like, it's not that far. No, it's very close. Michelle Goose, who is nine, Lori Lee Farmer, who is eight, and Doris Denise Milner, who is 10, would be assigned to unit eight. And Doris is called Denise most of the time. That's what she went by. There was also a fourth girl that was supposed to be in tent eight as well, but there had been a mix-up during registration, and she was scheduled to be moved into the tent later that day. But due to a thunderstorm, the staff decided to move her in the morning instead. So none of these girls had met before, but they seemed to get along well and form a quick friendship, which I feel like is a normal thing for most eight to ten-year-old girls. Well, especially in Girl Scout camp where they share a common interest. They're all there for the same thing. They know the same songs. They're doing the same crafts. They're doing everything together. 
So Doris, or Denise, was 10, and she was born on February 5th, 1967. Her parents were Walter and Betty Milner. Denise was actually the only black camper there that year. She was accepted into the Carver Middle School, and this was for exceptional children. She did gymnastics, tap dancing, sang in the church choir. She was a fifth grader, and this was her first year doing Girl Scouts. So she had never stayed overnight anywhere, but worked hard selling cookies to pay her way to the camp, which I feel like that's how most most Girl Scout camps work, right? Yeah, that's how Cordy's worked as well. So basically, when you sell cookies, you can choose to either get the prizes at the different levels or you can choose to have the money put towards camp. So actually, I think Cordy was one of two girls in her entire troop that did that. Everybody else's parents just paid for camp. Cordy was the only one at our meeting that didn't get prizes after selling cookies because she put her money towards camp. Which that is exactly how every one of my mom's children's childhood has worked, is that if you want to do something, you're going to have to work for it. So at the last minute, the day before she had to leave for camp, all of a sudden she had a change of heart. She didn't want to go. She cried. She begged her mom to let her stay home. She was anxious about leaving her mom and five-year-old sister at home. Her mom told her that she needed to go, and if she hated it after the first night, that she could come home. It really bothers me that she didn't want to go to camp. Which is a very normal thing for a child to change their mind, especially one who hasn't ever spent the night anywhere before. Even Cordy the day before camp was kind of unsure about it. But the thing is, is that it's sad in this case that she didn't want to go and her mom was like, you have to go. Then we have Lori, who's eight years old and was born June 18, 1968 to Charles and Sherry Farmer. Lori had just finished the fourth grade at Jenks Elementary. She was a top student there and had even skipped second grade. She was the oldest of five children. It was her first time to Girl Scout camp, and she was nervous about being the youngest girl there. So remember, she skipped a grade, but she's going to be with kids that are in her grade and older. So she is probably going to be the youngest girl there. She also said that she was unsure if she wanted to go, but her mom thought it would be best. Lori's birthday was on June 18, and she would have her birthday while at camp. Her family had never been without her on her birthday, so they had made plans to drive down there on her birthday, which was a Saturday, and celebrate it with her, or at least come see her at the camp. Michelle was born July 22, 1967. So she was born to Richard and Georgian Goose. She had a 14-year-old brother, and this was her. This would be her second time attending Camp Scott. She was very excited about the camp, and she was part of Troop 624. However, she was worried about her plants, especially her African violet. She asked her mom to remember to water them. God damn. This is a 9-year-old, and she's taking care of an African violet? I can't even take care of the succulents I have. I'm killing them. They're dying. Yeah, Madison brought her succulents out to me the other day and was like, you have to help them. So I'm now, I just got three new plants, you guys. Okay, so she asked her mom to remember to water them. She is active and an athletic girl and she played soccer. 
Naturally, all three of these girls became fast friends. Around 6 p.m., the Girl Scouts, they ate dinner and sung camp songs around the fire. That is the most Girl Scout thing I've ever heard in my entire life. And it really happens, you guys. I had my doubts. And when they actually started singing songs around the campfire, I was like, it's real? (laughs) Around 7 p.m., a thunderstorm rolled in and forced the girls into heading into their tent. One of the things that the girls were assigned to do was to write their first letter before going to bed. Oh, they wrote letters? Okay. Michelle's letter was to her Aunt Karen, and it said, How are you? I am fine. I am writing from camp. We can't go outside because it is storming. Me and my tent mates are in the last tent in our unit. My tent mates are Denise and Lori. My room is in shades of purple. Love, Michelle. Lori's letter. Dear Mom and Dad and Missy and Joe and Chad and Kathy. We're getting ready to go to bed. It's 7.45. We're at the beginning of a storm and having lots of fun. I've met two new friends, Michelle Goose and Denise Milner. I'm sharing a tent with them. It started raining on the way back from dinner. We're sleeping in cots. I couldn't wait to write. We're all writing letters now because we hardly have anything else to do. With love, Lori. Denise's letter was to her mom and it read, Dear Mom, I don't like camp. It's awful the first day it rained. I've met three new friends named Glenda, Lori, and Michelle. Michelle and Lori are my roommates. Mom, I don't want to stay at camp for two weeks. I want to come home and see Cassie and everybody. Your loving child, Denise Milner. Uh, And the fact that she says she wants to just come home and see her sister too. Ugh. So, at 10.30 p.m., counselor D.N. Elder checked on the girls in their tents. They were laying in their beds, chatting happily. One of them was reading a book. So, one by one, the camp lights went out. Gradually, the giggling subsided, and a quiet fell over the camp. Later that night, counselors started to hear strange sounds in the woods. Nope. No. And some thought that they had seen a flashlight coming from the woods. No. Another one that I'm just going to say no to. So when they shine their flashlights in that direction, the light turned off. I don't like that. No, no, I don't like any of this. Side note, these counselors, before we get to critical, are like 16 years old. These are not adults. These are kids. Yeah, so from what I understand, it's basically senior scouts like older girl scouts because you you age out of these camps and they are the ones that are staying in the campsites with the girls so in this counselor tent and the adults are in a totally different place one camper named amy sullivan recalled in an article written by the tulsa world that she wrote in her diary by flashlight when she finally switched off her flashlight she remembers being swallowed by the darkness She thought that it was both magical and scary at the same time. She said that she couldn't tell if her eyes were open or closed. She said that the darkness would stay with her. It became my personal measure of any darkness from that night forward and ever after. Yeah, and I can attest to this as well. When you are in the middle of nowhere and there is no electricity. So 
our campground sounds very similar to this one that we went to. There was no electricity except in the kitchen, which was on the other side of the lake from where we were. So it's very, very dark. So um, here's, here's your heads up. We are going to get into the girls being found. Okay, so on June 13, 1977, at 6 a.m., Counselor Carla Wilhite, who was 18, you guys, was on her way to the shower when she saw something about 150 feet from tent number eight. It was near the base of a tree. It was Denise, and she was laying on top of her sleeping bag, and it was obvious to Carla that she was dead. Lori and Michelle were zipped into their sleeping bags nearby, but she didn't initially see them. She ran for help, thinking there must have been a terrible accident. Right? Because you see this sight. Oh, I can't even imagine, like, what would be going through my brain when I see this awful or even if you could comprehend what you were seeing. But in her mind, there must have been an accident. She's not thinking somebody murdered this little girl. She returned with the camp director and the camp nurse. And that's when they realized the other two girls were there as well. Soon, the medical examiner would arrive and would kneel down and pronounce each girl dead, something that everybody already knew. As police were showing up, children could be heard singing. The camp counselors were working hard to shield the children from the horror unfolding nearby. Which, um, yeah, that's, uh, that is completely understandable. Well, and basically when they found these girls, two of the camp counselors split up. One started at tent eight and one started at tent two, technically, or one and seven, and started count they were going to go count the girls and when the counselor went into tent eight she was met with a bloody scene so at that point they just basically started getting all of the girls out of there as quickly as they could and away from the tents so the tent there was blood everywhere pooled on the floor on the pillows on the cots just all over the place And then we have the bodies. So three sleeping bags, one yellow plaid, one dark green, and one red flower patterned. All laying next to each other. All the girls were nude, had ropes around their necks, and had been bound and gagged. Two-inch wide electric tape had been used. So many things I don't like in that one. Um, Electrical tape is on my list of no-no things. It's just, it's too much. Okay. Other evidence found were their clothes, which were found a few feet away, and some reports say that they were folded. Ooh, that is so scary. Everything, like, the clothes folded. That is so much more disturbing to me than just them thrown. Agreed. With the exception of one of Denise's shoes, which were missing. A large six-volt red flashlight had been found near one of the bodies. The lens had been partially covered by green plastic to only allow a small amount of light in. Tape was found on the battery inside that matched the tape found on the girls. So probably safe to say this flashlight was left by the killer. 
There was also a crumpled up piece of newspaper stuffed in between the battery and the bottom of the light. A fingerprint was lifted from the reflector inside the flashlight. A partial roll of black electrical tape, rope, a pair of glasses, and a glass case that was red with gold trim were also found. A girl's hairpiece with two blue balls attached to it was located about 108 feet east from the tent. It appeared that Lori and Michelle had been killed inside the tent. Blood was found on their cots and pooled on the floor below them. Denise's cot had no blood on it. There were bloody footprints found in the tent that appeared to be made by a nine and a half tennis shoe. There were also work type boot prints in the blood. The entire platform and the flashlight along with other evidence were flown to the state bureau headquarters for testing. They also found rags used to soak up blood and a camera in one of the sleeping bags. The camera belonged to one of the girls. Semen was also found on one of the girls' pillows. Mm-mm-mm. No, no, no. So the news. It started to break by 8 a.m., so right off the bat. Pretty quick, yeah. So Lori's mom, Sherry Farmer, was at home taking care of Lori's siblings when her husband, Bo, arrived home from his overnight shift at the hospital. He looked ghost white, and she had never seen him like that. And then she realized he wasn't alone. He had one of his colleagues with him. Which, so what happened here was they were unable to get a hold of her mom, Lori's mom or dad. So they had called the emergency contact, which was one of his colleagues. So that's how he found out was from one of his colleagues. Oh, God, oh, God, oh, God, oh, God, oh, God. Okay, so the colleague told Sherry to sit down and she said, no, I'm not going to sit down. She had no idea what the news was, but she knew it was going to change her life. Denise's mom, Betty, she was in class where she worked as a teacher's aide when someone came in and took her to the principal's office, where someone, she doesn't remember who, told her that Denise is dead, she and two other girls. She asked if there had been an accident and couldn't imagine that it would be anything else, to which she was told that Denise had been beaten to death. Jesus. Okay, so Michelle's dad received a call at work from his wife, Georgianne, who, with a wavering voice, told him that Michelle was dead and that there had been an accident. He actually found out that she was murdered on TV. Seriously. Another mother heard the news while at her beauty shop when it came over the radio there. They were just beginning to blow dry her hair. Another mother heard the news on the radio and instantly started driving towards the camp where she passed the charter buses full of children and turned her car around to go find her daughter. So everybody basically just starts hearing about this news and panicking because they don't know if it's their kid or not. Exactly. Which I will tell you right now, I have driven myself to a school before when I heard news that something had happened. Well, and parents started hearing about it because their children at the school who had phones were messaging them. I think I messaged you about it. I think I was under my desk with my phone or something. I don't know. Yeah, seriously terrifying. 
one of the worst parts about that one is that year that that happened, I was in a portable. I wasn't even in a regular classroom. Mm-hmm. That was fifth grade, I think. Right? Yeah. So you were in like the least secure place in the entire school. Mm-hmm. Okay. So this really, really, I'm not trying to judge anyone, but this really, really makes me mad. This gets me a little bit. So the parents would later find out that they were not the first calls made. That the camp first had called their insurance company and then their attorney before notifying parents. I'm sorry, but you just had multiple young girls murdered. And your first thing you're going to do is call your insurance and attorney and you're not even going to notify the parents. You're just going to be like, oh, well, we have to cover our asses first. The camp started notifying parents that they were bringing their children back to Tulsa by bus. By noon, parents were anxiously waiting for their children to arrive. The buses started arriving at 2.15. So it took the camp until 2.15 to get the children back. Which I don't, I don't know how long of a drive it was, but that seems like a long time to me. That also seems like a very long time to me. One camper recalls that she asked her parents what had happened once they were in their car and she was told that three girls were killed at camp she later wrote in her journal i came home from camp because something happened at camp three girls got killed and later she would cross out killed and write murdered so literally these girls when they arrived they arrived back home they still didn't know what had happened which is probably good The police arrived at the camp, and soon after, hordes of reporters would follow. So they interviewed the security guard who said that he had locked the gate at 11 p.m. that night. At 6 a.m., it was still locked, so the police believed that the killer did not drive in, that he had walked in instead. That adds up with the camp counselors seeing the flashlight. That's exactly what I was thinking. I was thinking there was no way a car drove into this area. Yeah, without waking anybody up, like, he definitely walked in. On June 15th, 1977, police began to scour the woods. They brought in search dogs, including some that were flown in from Pennsylvania for the search. They helped determine the entrance and exit point of the killer. The dogs led police to a pond where they found a burnt-out campfire. They also found flour and tobacco in nearby caves. They conducted hundreds of interviews and nothing came of this. One camper said that she thought she had heard screams in the night, but she wasn't sure because of the thunderstorm. But she went and told the counselors anyway, who dismissed the idea and told her to go back to bed. They figured she was just hearing something from the storm. She was in a tent near tent 8. At 1.30 a.m. after the storm had passed, a counselor said, She checked on the campers and everything seemed fine. Between 2 and 4 a.m. is when the girls were thought to have been killed. And then there's going to be some stuff that's going to make you just shake your head in wonder at how this happened. Police had asked camp counselors if there had been anything strange that happened leading up to this. And here's what happened. So two months prior... A training session for the camp staff was held. It ended after someone ransacked the counselor's cabin. Multiple items had been taken, including a pair of sunglasses. Another camp scout worker had found an empty donut box, and it had contained a note saying, 
We are on a mission to kill three girls in tent one. Okay, so something about this, or a couple things about this. One, there is no proof that this note ever existed because it was thrown away. So the fact that it specifically calls out three girls in tent one, which could be mistaken for tent eight since it's at the end of the row, the fact that it it specifically calls that out when there's no way that anyone would have known there would only be three girls in that tent makes me think that maybe it's not exactly what the note said. Because it seems a little too coincidental to me, but I don't know. The note also mentioned Martians and someone drew an image of someone hanging from a tree. It was dismissed by counselors as a prank and police were never contacted. No. So if you find a note in your mailbox, if you find a note at your work, on your car, if you find a note anywhere that says that somebody's going to kill you or something's going to happen like that, maybe report it to the police. Even if you think it's a joke, probably report it to the police. But wait, there's more. Great. Cool. I like it. I'm not ready. So the day before campers arrived, Richard Day, who is the husband of the camp director said that he had encountered a stranger in the camp wearing jeans, carrying a jug, and looking for water. It is discovered that one of the tents in Kiowa had been slashed, like one of the door tents had been slashed or cut open. And counselors are startled by two men that they see at the camp on the same day. But wait, there's more. Campers had voiced concerns about seeing a man behind their tent wearing khaki clothes and army boots, which can also be work boots. Are campers just imagining things? Is is it just pranks? We don't know, but I feel like there's enough going on that maybe something should have been done. Police did believe that whoever had committed this crime was familiar with the camp and the area. Like maybe they had been there before or they were local. Okay, so I'm going to go over briefly the autopsy now. So it's a good time for a break if you so desire. Or you need to fast forward. Lori and Michelle had both died from blows to the head. Denise was also beaten, but she died from strangulation by ligature. All three girls had been sexually assaulted. Biological, including sperm and hair, was found on the girls. The sperm was found deformed or without tails. But there would be no DNA testing because DNA testing doesn't come out until the late 80s. What causes sperm to have no tails and be disformed? Well, some of it can be genetic, but many think that the tailless sperm is caused by like a botched vasectomy, basically. And the autopsy actually put the deaths between 4 and 6 a.m. I got some questions. I got some questions here. So nobody heard anything. Nothing. These girls were murdered in their tent and nothing was heard. This is one of those things that I keep going back to wondering how one person could have committed this crime. 
they had been attacked while in their sleeping bags, it looks like, and the majority of the attack had occurred inside the tent. Lori was buried on June 15, 1977 at Memorial Park Cemetery in Tulsa, Oklahoma. Denise was buried on June 16, 1977 at Green Acres Memorial Garden in Sperry, Oklahoma. So Michelle's memorial service was held on Friday, June 17, 1977 at Maryland Funeral Home in Broken Arrow. She was then cremated. So her dad actually said that he felt like his daughter knew she wasn't coming home from camp that summer. He said that when she hugged him and said goodbye, he felt like she knew. About a week after the murder, police announced that there had been two burglaries linked to the murders. The one that occurred in the counselor's tent and the second one took place at a farm that was near the camp. A small quantity of beer had been stolen and rope and tape had been left at the farm. It matched the tape and rope found on the girls. Police had found a piece of plastic, three blue ribbon beer bottles, and a crowbar along a fence line between Camp Scott and the farm. They did question the owner of the farm and he passed a polygraph and was ruled out. So at this point, other Girl Scout camps are still opening after this happened. And Camp Scott, I think, I believe I read somewhere that they actually continued a day camp later on in the summer, but just with no overnight. No, thank you. But these camps that are opening up are also adding security like armed guards and more adults and adults in every tent or cabin with the girls kind of precautions. Three miles down the road is a Boy Scout camp that actually remained open during this entire time. Only 13 parents of the 130 boys went and retrieved their children after the murders. I'm sorry. 13 out of 130? Yeah, they were like, we paid for this camp. You're staying. Okay, I don't know that they actually said that, but I am shocked. Because if you look at a map, which I'll post a picture of it, if you look at a map of this Boy Scout camp and this Girl Scout camp, they're basically like across the street from each other and just down the road a little ways. Five of the Boy Scouts were questioned about their contact in May with a teenage camper who was described as pale and skinny. After eating with the boys, he stole a hatchet, hunting knife, and whetstone from them. So that's kind of interesting. I wonder how old all of these Boy Scouts were. On June 15, 1977, the police announced that they had found two photos in a cave that they believed to be linked to the murders, and more specifically to the killer. They were able to identify the women in the photo, and they announced that they had a suspect. He had been on the run since 1973, and a warrant was issued for his arrest. Their suspect is Jean Leroy Hart, who is 33 years old. And it was believed that Hart was hiding out in the woods. As a kid, he was described as a quiet, polite, good-looking boy. He played sports. He was a Locust Grove native and part of the Cherokee tribe. He was an expert woodsman, 
trouble began to plague him around 1966. He was arrested and accused of abducting two women from a Tulsa club. One of them was pregnant. He raped them and left them for dead in a remote wooded area. That doesn't put up any red flags for me. I mean, I feel like that's a normal part of every young man's life. Madison's feeling a little sarcastic right now. Okay. He had stuffed rags in their mouths and put electrical tape over their nose and mouths and bound their hands and ankles and then covered them in leaves and brush. So basically, he's leaving them for dead. The women were somehow able to escape, and he was sentenced to 10 years in prison. Once again, I'm sorry. 10 years? Yeah, 10 years. You're just... Okay, okay. before Maddie completely freaks out, it gets worse. He was paroled after 28 months. I'm sorry. 28 months. Yep. Rehabilitated. You can go out into society after kidnapping and raping multiple women. Okay, I'm going to take the mic away from her now. Okay. You're kidding. You're kidding me. (laughs) Even 10 years. And then in 1969, he was arrested again. Shocking. And charged with four counts of first-degree burglary. He burglarized three homes that all had people at home and sleeping in them. But kind of funny, the last home that he broke into was actually the home of Tulsa's only female officer. And this is how he was caught. He was found guilty and sentenced to a maximum, maximum, what if? Who cares about the maximum of 305 years in prison? So if you're catching that right, I'm assuming that because of his parole violation and the additional crimes is why he got a larger sentence this time. So a parole violation and robbery is what sets him off to 305 years. But kidnapping and rape, you only get 10 years. Or 28 months in this case, yes. And then he escaped from prison and had been on the run for four years when the Girl Scout murders occurred. So law enforcement, civilian volunteers, dogs, and aircrafts all took to the woods in order to hunt down Gene Hart. There were over 400 volunteers and 200 law enforcement in the forest looking for this man. This forest is very dense with snakes, oh, tick infested? A tick infested, snake infested forest. And it's dense. No, (laughs) I don't like that forest already. Let's put some kids in it. Let's put a lot of kids in it. Let's put a Boy Scout camp and a Girl Scout camp in a tick infested, snake infested, dense ass forest. So the days turned into weeks with no sign of heart. So on June 16th, 1977, it was determined that the eyeglasses found nearby the bodies belonged to one of the counselors and that the killer had walked a path and went by the counselor's tent in order to get to where the bodies were. It was also revealed that a denim purse was stolen from the counselor's tent in the Kiowa unit the night of the murders. So if that's true, that means that the killer, at some point while at the camp, entered the counselor's tent. So on June 22nd, 1977, it was announced that the cave with the evidence in it was found two miles from the camp. Two miles. Once again, not far at all. How long does it take us to hike? 
two miles? Maybe 40 minutes. Yeah. So who knows if this is flat ground? Like this might be like a two mile like. Okay, so here's the evidence that was found in the cave. A pair of sunglasses. And these are the sunglasses that were allegedly stolen from the camp and belonged to one of the counselors. A roll of tape, and it matched the type of tape found at the crime scene. It had also been found on the flashlight that had obviously been left by the killer. So some photos. There were photos that were taken at a wedding in the Magnum area in 1968. These wedding photos that were taken are how they linked their suspect to this case. So they were able to track down somebody who took the photos and their suspect had worked in a prison developing like film development room with this other person. So their suspect had worked in a dark room with the man that had taken the pictures and they had been in prison together. On July 17, 1977, a message was found on the wall of a cave. It said, the killer was here. Bye-bye, fools. And had the numbers 77, 6, and 17. So a date, I'm assuming. So June 17, 1977 would be my assumption. And fools was underlined twice. They also found cigarette butts and footprints. And crumpled up newspapers were also found. So Dr. Robert Phillips actually profiled the killer, and he said that the killer would be a sadistic psychopath with sexual perversions who might repeat the heinous crimes if not captured. Mentally, the killer could not tolerate the idea of rejection, and rage overwhelmed him. The murderer was not feeble-minded, knew right from wrong, and did not act on impulse. He also deduced that the killer was scared from the scene by something, which I agree with that because there's like blood that's been mopped up. A flashlight has been left behind. I think something startled him. So on July 29th, 1977, the Tulsa Tribune. Tulsa Tribune, you mean? I'm sorry, I can't read. I literally can't. Okay, what she said they reported that a pair of shoes turned up on the front steps of the com- oh my god of the command post for Camp Scott. There was a handwritten name, Denise Milner, on them. No. Cuz remember her shoes were missing. Actually, one of her shoes were missing. This is a different pair of shoes. A security guard found them after returning from a search. The tent doors of the building were wide open, and the security guard shut them when they left. Denise's mom confirmed that she did send two pairs of shoes to camp with Denise, and that they had not returned with her belongings. She said that there were also two pairs of socks, one pink and one yellow, and a monogram blue blanket and two cans of insect repellent that also never came back with her belongings. If these shoes are really Denise's, which it has not been confirmed nor denied, some believe it was a prank and some believe that they were her shoes. But even if they're not her shoes, I find it very strange that when the girls' clothes were found, one of Denise's shoes were missing. And now this second pair of shoes is missing. On August 3, 1977, the Tulsa World addressed an open letter to Hart urging him to surrender. They guaranteed that he would get a fair trial but he did not turn himself in. No shit, they usually don't. 
Well, remember, if he gets found, he still has a prison term to serve. So even if he is innocent of these murders, why would he turn himself in? True. True, 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 true. All right, so on September 22nd, 1977, a $3 million suit against the Girl Scouts was filed by the parents. Michelle's family did not participate in the suit. Okay, first off, I do think the Girl Scouts are partially responsible for what happened based on the way that certain things were handled in the camp. Whether or not the parents should get... $3 million in 1977, which is a lot of money, is neither here nor there. Either way, in the end, a jury ruled in favor of the Girl Scouts. Guys, on April 6, 1978, so a year after the murders, they found and arrested Gene Hart. He was in a small wood shack in the Cookson Hills of eastern Cherokee County. So... It's, I guess it's not a year. It's 10 months, right, after the murders. That's a long time that he's on the run. Mm-hmm. So police had gotten a tip that he was in the home of a man named Sam Pigeon. Later, William Smith, Sam Pigeon, and members associated with the Cherokee would be charged with aiding Hart. Okay, so when Hart's attorney first met him, the first thing he said was... I want you to know one thing. I didn't kill those Girl Scouts. Because obviously by this time he has heard that he is wanted, not just because he escaped from prison, but because he is a suspect in these murders. Oh, shit. Did he not do it? There is a lot of speculation that he didn't. And there's a lot of speculation that he did. That's not what I wanted to hear. Many thought that he was just a scapegoat in order to solve these murders. His mother also thought him innocent. And don't worry, she had a vision from God that said her boy didn't do it. A lot of people suspected that he was targeted simply for being Cherokee. Some even suggested that Sheriff Weaver had a grudge against him since he had escaped from his jail twice. So evidence at the shack... They found a mirror and toy pipe, which another Camp Scott counselor testified had been taken from her tent. There are no toy pipes. I don't know what a toy pipe is. Did this camp counselor get caught with a pipe and be like, oh, no, 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 no. It's just a toy. I don't smoke. Toy. Hold on, you guys. We're looking up a toy pipe. (laughs) What? Mr. Potato Head had a pipe? Well, um, I would just like to say that they actually did have toy pipes that you could give to your children in the 60s. Oh, my God. It's a real thing. Okay. Okay. It's, it's a legit thing, you guys. Okay. So preliminary hearing on June 7th, 1978 to July 6th, 1978. So it lasted a month. It was the longest preliminary hearing in the state's history. Support for Hart seemed to be growing. Money was raised for his defense. There was even a hog fry? I'm assuming that's an event where they fry a hog and people pay to raise money. How do you fry a hog? I have no idea. All right, let us know if you know what a hog fry is and if you've ever been to one. I'm curious. Don't understand it. Don't know what it means. Don't know what it is. So the tribal council donated $12,500. 
Yeah. And they claimed that they were not taking a position on his guilt or his innocence, but simply wanted to make sure that he got a fair trial. Yes, I think that everybody deserves a fair trial, but if he's guilty, all of this angers me. If he's innocent, I think it's great. If he's guilty, I'm mad. I can understand them wanting to give him a fair trial because... Well, especially if there's, like, people who are racist against... Yeah, like, if that's the reason, one of the reasons that he is... If he's innocent... And one of the reasons why people are like, oh, he did it is because of the fact he is Native American. That makes sense to me that they want to make sure that he got a fair trial, which I'm sure in the 60s, 70s, this was happening. Mm -hmm. He actually spoke to the press for the first time in a press conference. And in this press conference, I really think that the press allowed themselves to be manipulated. So they were not allowed to just ask any questions. He had pre- Basically, he got up there, said what he wanted to say, and then would not answer any questions or do anything else. So the thought was that he was trying to get himself out there to be more relatable to people and to explain himself so that people would feel for him. And it definitely kind of felt like that. The trial started on March 5, so 21 months after the murders. Jury selection took 10 days. There were six men and six women. So there was a school teacher, a gas fire foreman, a plant manager, a housewife. So they had quite the combination. Mm -hmm. They were sequestered at a hotel for the duration of the trial. And this would be a capital murder trial. So they were going for the death penalty. Hart pleaded not guilty. He wore a dark blue three-piece suit to court and really looked not like a killer. People thought he looked very professional and comfortable in this courtroom. Judge William J. Whistler would be presiding. Press and spectators would start lining up hours early to try to get a spot in the courtroom. They assigned Oklahoma Highway Patrol in an attempt to keep order. So lots of people wanted to go to this trial. Here is the evidence. So the flashlight, um, Hart had been said to modify his flashlights in this way in the past. Although his fingerprints did not match the one in the flashlight. So then the sperm that was recovered at the crime scene. So remember that it had disformed tails. Some thought that it could have been caused by a butch vasectomy. It was reported in some places that Hart had the same issue. Now we're going to talk about evidence in the cave. Witnesses claim that Hart used the cave while he was on the run and that it was just 100 feet from Hart's one-time childhood home. So they found sunglasses in the cave that were allegedly stolen from the camp and belonged to a counselor. I think we talked about these earlier. So they also found a roll of tape that matched the tape that was at the crime scene, the ones that was wrapped around the flashlight in some way, shape, or form. I think it was inside the flashlight on the battery. Okay, okay, I see. And this flashlight was thought to be left by the killer that was at the crime scene. Okay, so then there was green plastic. It's weird because it says similar plastic. It doesn't say the same type of plastic. It doesn't say plastic from the same piece. It's just a similar type of plastic. So does this mean anything? 
And then the whole photo thing that were linked to Hart and that he'd once worked in a prison photo lab. Hart didn't take them. They were actually taken by somebody he was in prison with. Okay, I have a couple issues with this evidence real quick. So we have the sunglasses, which everywhere it says they were allegedly stolen. So allegedly. Right, which maybe tells me that they couldn't verify whether or not they had come from the counselor's tent or if they were completely different sunglasses altogether. Another thing, the roll of tape. It matches the same type that was found, but they cannot connect any of the tape to the roll of tape specifically. The green plastic is similar to, but not the same as the green plastic found on the flashlight. The photos, they are linked to Hart, but only because he once was in prison with the man who allegedly is believed to have taken the photos. So they're not linked to him because they know they're his. They're not linked to him because he took the pictures. They're linked to him because he once worked in a prison darkroom with the man that took these photos, who's also a criminal. Another thing If this is near his childhood home and he was known to have been hiding out in the cave, would his things not be in the cave anyway? So say the pictures are his. I don't see anything here that is exactly a smoking gun. So that's something that I have issue with, with this evidence. Fair enough. So now we have the evidence that was found in the shack. So a mirror and a toy pipe, which... Uh, another camp counselor said that it had been taken from her tent. Right. So whether or not these are the exact items that were taken from her tent, there's no identifiers on them. But also Hart's defense team is saying that the police planted these items and the man whose cabin this was said that those items were not there before the police showed up. So a lot of circumstantial evidence in this case. And first off, what is a a, a mirror? There are millions of mirrors. Well, that's what I mean. That's why everything is alleged to have belonged to a counselor at the camp. A toy pipe. We I just looked up and saw dozens of photos of toy pipes from the 60s. It was like something they sold. So the prosecution's case relied heavily on the biological evidence they brought experts in saying that it was probably a match to heart. But again, can't really be verified. Also, they heavily relied on the evidence found in the cave, which in the cave was the sunglasses, the tape, things that were similar to. Yeah, all things that were similar, but not the exact, not Anything that could be proven to be exactly what was found at the crime scene. Right. So, like, say that roll of tape matched an edge on the tape found on the girls. That would be totally different if it had been cut from the same roll of tape and they could prove that. But it's just similar tape. The same type of tape. So, in the defense's opening statement, he claimed that this was all a grand design to convict an innocent man. He also claimed that evidence had been planted by police. He also offered alternative suspects who were criminals, rapists, had been in the area, had been arrested afterwards, things like that. Hart's the guy that kidnapped the girls, though. Yes, no matter what, he's a criminal. 
But that's part of his defense's argument. They're saying that they found themselves a criminal to pin it on that was out of jail at the time because he was on the run and zeroed in on him, where the police are saying that's not what happened. So defense witnesses, Alan Little, former Mayes County Sheriff's jailer, he testified of the photo linked to Hart that he saw them in the sheriff's office. After the prisoner escaped in 1973, which the defense cited as evidence, they must have planted it in the cave. Sam Pigeon, whose shack Hart had been captured in, he testified that he had never seen the items in his home that were recovered by police. One of the families actually said that they thought the trial would be more civilized and fact-based. Instead, she said it was like watching a movie and feared the best performer was going to win the day. At one point, the prosecutor invited the defense attorney outside to, like, fight him. So you can imagine what this trial looked like. Hart did not take the stand in his defense. Which might have done him good to not take the stand. I think it would have been bad. I think it would have opened him up to a lot of things about his past criminal behavior, maybe. Yeah, that's what I think. I think that it was a smart move for him not to take the stand. I think in most cases, it's a smart move to not take the stand. We have done cases on people who are guilty or who are even not guilty who take the stand and dig themselves their own grave on stand. On Thursday, March 29, closing arguments concluded only 10 days after the trial started. It's a short trial. So the death of three young girls and the man that they think did it and the trial is 10 days long. Well, if you think about it, there's not a ton of evidence that's relevant to convicting heart so that's really all they need to go over the rest of it is was probably sorted through in the preliminary trial so the jurors deliberated for six hours on thursday and then resumed on friday morning just a half hour after starting they sent the word that they had reached a decision their verdict was not guilty and just for the record they actually One juror said that it actually only took them five minutes to decide that he wasn't guilty. Another said that they didn't know if he was guilty or innocent, but there were too many loose ends and not enough evidence. I think my biggest issue with this is not enough evidence. So one family said that Hart's supporters cheering like they were at a ball game, and that was the hardest part to handle. Well, because imagine you are sitting in a courtroom. The authorities and the prosecutor have assured you that they have found the man that murdered your daughter. And then you have all of these citizens cheering when he is found not guilty, which (sighs) one small solace was that he still had 300 years to serve on his previous charges. So no matter what, he's not going free. Which I would guess that that probably played a role in the jury feeling like they could say not guilty because no matter what, he was going back to jail. Yeah, just like there's not enough for them to charge him with this case because there's so many loose ends, but they felt like that even if he was guilty and they found him not guilty, he was still going away to prison for the rest of his life. On June 4, 
two months after the verdict and almost two years after the murders, Hart died in prison. He had a heart attack after working out and he was 35 years old. Some suspected foul play, but the medical examiner said it was natural causes. He always denied his involvement in the Girl Scout murders. And just hours before his death, he wrote a letter to the Tulsa Tribune and he said, The record has been set straight as far as I'm concerned. The jury voted right when they voted not guilty. And my family and supporters knew the entire process was a sham. There were over 1,000 mourners at his funeral, which I have a huge problem with. Right. So even if he was innocent of these murders, he was still a convicted rapist. And not just that, but he tied up these women, one of them being pregnant. He tied them up, bound them, bare, like borderline suffocated them, covered them with leaves and left them for dead. He's still a shitty human being, even if he didn't kill those girls. No matter what, not a good person. Yep. So I would like to know, I would guess that there were probably so many people at his memorial, more out of like morbid curiosity rather than like support, or at least I would hope so. So Camp Scott was closed down after the murders and all of the tents were removed. It's now privately owned and used for hunting. We should go. I think that's why everybody says it's privately owned. In other words, like don't come on the property without permission. It's used for hunting. It's probably a good way to get yourself shot, but I still want to go. On July 7, 1989, DNA was submitted to the FBI for analysis. Their rule was to only work on active cases, but they made an exception for the Girl Scout murders. Thank God, because this is three, not eight, nine, and ten-year-old girls. Well, but one of the problems, too, is that prosecutors and supporters of Hart being guilty insist that they had the right guy. They just didn't have enough evidence to actually convict him. So as far as the FBI is concerned, they could have been like, well, you already know who did it. We don't need to help you prove that. The guy's dead anyway. It doesn't matter. So I am glad that somebody's saying we should probably make sure. So on October 25th, 1989, genetic testing came back as inconclusive. Only three out of the five probes matched, which means that one in 7,700 American Indians would match the crime scene sample as Hart did. Yep. So if all five probes had matched, it would have been a one in three billion, which is why it's considered inconclusive. Because that one in 7,700 is not a high enough number for it to be conclusive. Again, in 2008, it was tested and it was concluded that it was too corrupted due to the way it had been stored for the past 30 years. However, they did show female DNA that did not match any of the girls. So Lori's mother was quoted in 2008 saying that she always felt like there was a female involved in some way. Which this would kind of support that. And I could see there being more than one person involved in this, although a female being a part of this really is really icky to me. I always think that females being part of, like, in a male partnership, female-male partnerships is always really disturbing to me. Like, it's all disturbing to me, obviously, but I'm especially bothered when it's a male-female duo. Not only that, remember those size 9 tennis shoes? 
That could have belonged to a woman. Yeah. We know there's a male involved because there's semen, right? I don't know about the female DNA. I find it very strange. Could it have been contamination at some point along the way where it got into the samples? Yeah, probably, right? In 2017, $30,000 was raised in an attempt to have the remaining evidence tested. Hair samples taken from the bodies and from Hart's head were exactly the same, according to Reed, an OSBI chemist. She stated that they either came from Hart's head or someone with the same microscopic characteristics. However, we know that hair analysis now has been discredited as a forensic technique. Really? Yeah. They're saying basically that it's all subject to what somebody sees and there's no science behind it. Okay, and this is crazy. So put on your sailor hats. I don't know. I don't I don't know what I want to put on your Mm, we're not really talking about crazy things, so I was going to say put on your tinfoil hats, but we're not really going into that kind of thing right now. Buckle up, maybe? Put your seatbelt on? Put a helmet on? In 1963, in Colorado, so 14 years before the Girl Scout murders, Margaret Elizabeth Beck, who was 16, was murdered at camp. But wait, she was found dead in her sleeping bag at the Mile High Girl Scout camp. She was alone in her tent because her tent mate was in the infirmary due to the cold weather. She was zipped into her sleeping bag. Counselors thought that she had just choked to death in her sleep or something like that, and they cleaned up and packed up her belongings and even swept before the police arrived. Don't touch a fucking crime scene! When police arrived and unzipped her sleeping bag, they found that she had been sexually assaulted and murdered before being stuffed in. You know what this reminds me of? This reminds me of the Bodom Lake murders and how before they happened, there was the two other girls that were murdered in their tents, Mm -hmm. not far from there. That's what this reminds me of. No, it does. Yeah. So on June 29th, 1977, so the same year that the girls were murdered. In Sarasota, Florida, a 15-year-old girl was abducted from her Girl Scout tent and held captive. She was released unharmed on July 3rd. So here's another Girl Scout who maybe isn't murdered, but is taken, held captive, and God knows what done to her from Girl Scout camp. So that is just a similar, some similar cases of Girl Scouts going missing, which I find very disturbing. I don't like it. I'm going to go ahead and tell Cordelia that she has to quit the Girl Scouts. We're done. We're done. Years later, the parents are still dealing with the grief, obviously, of the loss of their children. Uh, Michelle actually died the day before her parents' anniversary. And to this day, they still don't celebrate their anniversary. Isn't that sad? That's so sad. Lori's mom returned to the scene decades later and standing where her daughter's body was found so many years ago was a heavy thing for her. She braced herself on a tree where an orange and black monarch butterfly landed and stayed for several minutes. She couldn't help but wonder if this was a sign from her baby girl that she was okay and that everything was going to be okay. It's so So, um, 
that's the that's the Girl Scout murders for you. So we'll go into our bunker talk here in a minute, but we'll give some theories. On the surface, heart guilty or innocent, what do you think? I'm thinking that he is innocent. I do think that since he has the relation with the main officer in the case, I think that he just fit it perfectly, but I don't think he fits it enough. Yeah, I don't know. It's hard to say. I really I really want it to be heart because I want this person to be off the streets. And what if it wasn't heart, this person is just never killed again. I don't know. I I don't know if it's heart. I don't know. Let us know what you guys think. We're very curious. It seems like people are very, very split on this. I feel like maybe the guy got locked up for another thing. That could definitely be the case. So let us know what you guys think. Sorry this was kind of a rough one. Hopefully you all survived it with us because we're going to need to have a drink maybe now. Also, a huge resource for this case was the Camp Scott Murders by C.S. Kelly, which is a book that I read about the incident and the investigation. Go follow us on our social media, on Instagram at Lost in the Woods Podcast, along with Facebook. Yeah, and share it in your stories. We love when you guys do that. Thank you so much for everybody who has done that and mentioned us in forums where people are asking what podcast they should listen to. It's so fun to see our name thrown out there. Mm -hmm. You guys are amazing. It is really nice. Tell your friends about us. We love we we love it. We love it. Absolutely. Um and if you post us on your story, we'll post you on ours. Um and definitely follow our social media because we do make a post for every single episode you listen to. We post a lot of good things on the Instagram for you guys to get more of a visual like we post maps and different things with different cases so you can get more of a visual idea of what's going on in these cases also we would like to thank our patreons oh yeah for being so amazing if you are not a patreon you should definitely go and check it out you can hear our bunker talks which are basically yeah, we get a little more distracted in Bunker Talk and they're unedited. So every stupid thing that Maddie says is in there and I don't get to cut it out. <laughs> I say a lot of stupid things. So get ready for that. We also posted our first hiking with Hannah uh, this month, which if you don't know, is us taking my sister who is not a hiker out into the woods and trying not to kill her, which is super entertaining. And we have a new patreon episode also coming out next week and we might have some paranormal things coming out on our patreon Ooh. yeah hiking with hannah i think um i think everyone should listen to that because um i guess me and my mother get ourselves into some life-threatening situations on a regular basis which i don't really think about but uh hannah does hannah does we wanted to thank our iceland patreon <laughs> for sending us an actual voice recording Wait, I've never heard the voice recording oh it's so good you didn't no this is what you get for not checking the social media hold on we actually we're gonna play it really quick just listened to uh your podcast i loved it <laughs> okay so it's laura ingthorsdóttir yeah so um if you listen to that we were nowhere near that not even not even fucking close we even got laura wrong 
Yeah. So uh, cool name and cool accent. Thank you for sending it to us. Also, this week we have two new Patreons. One of them is Brent Armbrust. Yes. Armbrust. Yep. Sounds good to me. Thanks, Brett, for your support. We really, really appreciate you. We also have Beth Robinson. So welcome, Beth, and thank you for your support, too. Thank you so much for our Patreons. Hopefully you guys are enjoying the extra content that we're able to put in there and the bonus stuff that we've been doing. But go over to our Patreon. There is so much to binge over there. Uh, Next week, we are releasing an episode on... It's a non-hiking one, and it's on J.C. Dugard. It's our first non-hiking episode, so get ready for that, Patreons. $10 and up, right? So it's for our $10 and up Patreons. Um, get ready for that first non-hiking one. Let us know what you think, obviously. We love to hear you guys' feedback. Just don't be mean about it, because my mom will get her feelings hurt. <sighs> I'm a little more sensitive than Maddie about people saying bad things about me. <laughs> But yeah, thanks for listening, you guys. We really appreciate you, and we will see you next week. Oh, yeah. Bye. So, and then after Brazil, we can just go over to Peru, and then maybe we can just Go to Chile to go. All right, so basically we're no longer going to do the podcast because we're going to be traveling, you guys. We're going to be traveling in South America. Wait, can we do this on the road? We could really do this on the road. Oh, yeah, well, there was that one guy. There was, you guys, when we did our Europe hike, which, you know, everyone knows about if you've listened. We did a Europe hike. And um, when we did it, there was a guy that was hiking with his computer. I'm talking, this is like... Yeah, this like is, a laptop computer. Yeah, like a MacBook laptop computer. And you guys, every pound counts when you're hiking 100 miles. I don't care who you are carrying your laptop. And by the way, there's not really internet everywhere that you go. There's not... Only in some places do yeah. the hostels have Wi-Fi and things like or that. Or even plugins. Some of them don't even have plugins. Some of them, literally, one we went to had one single plugin that... It was like a rotation all day mm-hmm. and all night. But this guy's carrying his laptop. That was also the guy that couldn't carry his backpack and had to leave his backpack hike back with his friend. And was that the same guy? Or is that a different person? Leave his backpack. I don't know. Remember when we saw, when we were at the the one with the green oh, umbrellas, uh-huh. when we met the other guy that was from Luxembourg yep. that spoke yep. the made-up language with Gregory? He was. He had to leave his backpack. He made it to the refuge, and then his friend had to go back and get his backpack. And then hike back, which this day, you guys, was blistering hot. It was over 100 degrees. And not only was it over 100 degrees, but we are so high up with elevation. Yeah, I think we hiked like 18 miles that day. It was one of our longer days. It was bad, and that was the day that I realized that I had better vision than anybody else I was hiking with, Yeah, which was really entertaining. We were like up on this ledge. She was the, she was the youngin' of the group. I was. And we were up on this, like, ridge, this ledge, and we were looking down, and they're like, there's buildings there, but I can't tell if that's the refuge or not. And I was like, that's the refuge. And they're like, how do you know? And I was like, there's green umbrellas. There were green umbrellas in the picture. I could not see the umbrellas. And I was like, (laughs) and I can see a donkey. And they're like, what the fuck are you? That's not there. Turns out it was the refuge. I was seeing it, and I was correct. Yeah, that was the day that we hiked all day with Gregory and Jose. Yeah, that was the first day that we hiked 
all day. Mm-hmm. Like, the other times we, like, ran into them, like, halfway. That was the only day we hiked the entire day with them. That was the electric fence day. But, yeah, we'll we'll tell you guys all about Europe one of these times. One of these times. Maybe we'll do it for our Patreon. Let us know if you want to hear about it. I feel like you would not do good dealings with other people's children. I don't. I do not deal with other people's children. My mother is not a nurturing person. Like, not saying saying that she didn't, like, nurture us growing up because we are her own kids and that is different. But, like, she's not a nurturing person. Like, she's not going to – no. That's not – I'm not the person that's like, I'll watch your kids. Everybody come here. Like, my sister sees a baby and wants to steal it. And I'm like, I'm like, oh, that little thing. It's ugly. Yeah. I'm like, I'm like, oh, hi. And then, no, I don't want to hold your baby, actually. But thanks for asking. You okay? All right. Go eat your bagel. So Phoenix is bawling her eyes out because we heard her fall down the stairs. At least like slip on a stair. I think it was. It sounded like, oh no, she's not okay. She's coming back in here. Oh, you're so tough. Are you okay? All right, shake it off. Did you fall up the stairs? So yeah. we heard her crying. Okay. And then we we'll thought it would be okay. Okay, I okay, love you. All right, shake it off. Good girl. I'm like, shake it off. You're fine. Get back upstairs. No, I would get hurt at school and like the recess teachers or whatever would be like, you want to go to the nurse? Like they'd be like, you're injured. And I'm like, no, I'm fine. Shake it off. I'm okay. I'm like crying. Same thing if they got sick at school. I'd be like on the phone with the nurse and I'm like, hey, oh, they're not feeling well. Oh, no. But yeah, let me talk to them. I get on the phone. I'm like, you better be sick. If I come get you, you're going straight to your room. You are doing nothing. You are watching nothing. Are you still sick? Because I'm not coming to pick you up if you're not. Yeah, I never faked sick. It was pointless. (laughs) It was absolutely pointless. I think somebody's dragging a body around upstairs. It actually sounds like someone dragging a wooden bat upstairs. Side note, there is a wooden bat behind my bathroom door. Because what if you're in the bathroom when somebody breaks into your house? If you do not have a bat or some sort of protective something in your bathroom, I recommend it. Not only, wait, there is some logic behind this. Not only are you going to die because you have no weapon in your bathroom, but you're probably going to die on the toilet. And is that how you want your life to end? Okay. Okay, Maddie's kind of looking at me weird. Is it weird that I have a bat behind my bathroom door? No, I was just thinking about what weapons I have in my bathroom and I don't have anything. That's not weird, right? No, I don't think it's weird. I was just thinking about my bathroom. I don't have anything in my bathroom. You could you could take the the like shower spray, the cleaner, and just spray it in their eyes. Yeah, it's not the worst plan. Oh, by the way, where's my laptop? Why would I know where your laptop is and where did that come from? Um, I just saw Shed's, which is the same one as mine. So that's why I was reminded. But where's mine? It's not in my room. It's on the living room where I left it. I left it underneath the table. It's gone. I might have locked it up when I took electronics away from one of your sisters. (laughs) It's my laptop. Okay, so literally anytime my children get in trouble, they lose their electronics. That's just the way that it is. Usually electronics are lost for being disrespectful. That's the most common reason that electronics are lost in our household. And I have discovered that 
children now can turn any electronic basically into a phone as long as they have Wi-Fi. So I started having to confiscate all electronic items instead of just like taking a phone away or taking one iPad away. And I went into my safe the other day because Lulu asked me for her iPad because she wanted to like see if her Snapchat would work on it or something because it wasn't working on her phone. I didn't know which one was her iPad because I had 12 electronic devices of some kind locked in my safe. Is my fucking laptop in there? What about my Kindle? Is my Kindle in there? I would guarantee that your Kindle and your laptop are probably in there. I haven't seen my Kindle in like at least four years. I li- I just unlocked deep memory because I forgot that thing existed. So, yes, it's it's probably in there. But obviously, you didn't miss it that bad, so it's probably okay. Yeah, I never used the Kindle because I used it when I was like, I don't know, I think I got it for like my eighth birthday or something. It's like ancient. 